Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Good day. My name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this podcast is Dr. Corinna Hawks, a world expert on global food policy issues. She received a PhD in environmental and ecological geography from the University of London. She's worked with the World Health Organization, has done very influential reports for the WHO and for other organizations, and most recently has spent time at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. Welcome, Corinna. Thank you. So we're going to talk today about trade and nutrition, uh, a terribly important but underdeveloped, underexplored area. In fact, my guess is a lot of people listening to this won't automatically know what we're talking about when we bring up that topic. So tell us what you mean by the effect of trade on nutrition and obesity, and then we can get into some specifics. But what's the general importance of the issue? Well, um, beginning in the 1980s, uh, trade uh, rules were changed around the world, began to be changed. That made it easier to move food across borders and also to move capital across borders, move finance across borders, and um, which meant that it became easier to, uh, for, for food companies to source, to, to, to export their food to other countries and also to import ingredients from other countries and then also to invest in food companies in other countries and then to create larger transnational companies. And this has really changed the way that the food system operates. Um, in the United States and nationally, it's not just a global phenomenon. It has, it's very important as a national phenomenon. So g- give us some examples, if you would. So you mentioned that the, uh, because the moving capital and moving food, and mm-hmm. it's made it easier for a smaller number of companies to be involved in the food system. Mm-hmm. Has that happened, in fact, that the food uh, supply system has been consolidated in fewer hands than used to be the case? That's right. Um, because of the economies of scale, um, uh, larger numbers of, of uh, um, the smaller number of food companies have become larger through consolidation. And um, and so more and the more the world's food is sold by a smaller number of companies. That said, um, the packaged food market is still a very there's still thousands and thousands and thousands of companies. Relatively speaking, it's not as concentrated as some of the other industries. Um, however, that degree of transnationality is very very high. In other words, um, the uh, if you're a food company, the chances of you being in another country are very very high. And um, and also the the brands are very concentrated. Uh, so if you sell Oreo cookies or whatever, then then you're going to be a, a big brand leader of that particular product. So you're seeing more concentration within products. Um, so that's an, another important trend. So you made the point that some parts of the industry are um, diverse in the sense that there are many players selling mm-hmm. packaged goods, for mm-hmm. example, but then in other parts of the industry, like the beverage industry, it's mm-hmm. highly consolidated. That's that, right. The beverage industry is, is actually um, somewhat atypical in the incredibly high degree of concentration that it has for Coke and Pepsi. Mm-hmm. That's right. And they have been very, very successful in their efforts to to move um, into other countries. Coke was a very early leader. Um, very early leader in, in this and has really kind of pioneered uh, coca colonization as some uh, some have termed it 
And, um, and of course, it became much easier when the trade rules were changed. Um, uh, examples of trade rules include the North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, which greatly facilitated the ability for them to do business in Mexico. And uh, recently, there was a trade agreement called the Central American Free Trade Agreement, which, again, is going to make it easier for American companies to set up business and to, and to operate in the Central American countries. But another issue around trade, it doesn't just affect the package and processed foods. It's a very important um, area for um, other commodities, uh, particularly animal feed, meat, and vegetable oils. So can, do you have some examples of how diets in countries have changed based because of these changes in trade policy? Um, I think there were three areas in which diets in developing countries have been, uh, the change has been facilitated by trade. And I think the increase in in consumption of processed um, packaged food is one of them. And the increase of meat and, and the increase in consumption of vegetable oils. What trade tends to do is to increase the degree of specialization. We talked about companies earlier, but it also does this with foods. For example, 20, 30 years ago, there was much uh, greater difference in, say, vegetable oils. Groundnut oil, peanut oil, for example, was uh, was consumed much more. And there was much uh, more of a, of, a, of a spread between many more different types of vegetable oil. What we've seen in the last 10, 20 years is soybean oil and palm oil uh, become absolutely dominant in, in, in the consumption of people's diets. So, so, and they're the cheaper oils. So what you see is a shift from a larger number of oils to a smaller number of oils and an increased consumption of those oils. And at the same time, you've got a greater number of different, highly differentiated processed foods. So when it comes to the ingredients, you see a convergence. When it comes to the differentiation between the processed foods, you're seeing a diversion. So you're seeing these kind of two trends and trade facilitates both of those processes. Do you think this has led to erosion of native diets around the world? There's no question that the change in the way that people live their lives, urbanization and so on, means that people are going to be consuming different foods. I mean, diets are always going to change. There's nothing wrong with that. And people's incomes change and so on. That's always going to... So people are going to start to want to to consume different foods. The question is, what what is that change going to be? And what form does it take exactly? And I think what trade has done is to facilitate the form that that has taken. And what form is that tending to take? I mean, how it's te- it, 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 it is tending to take the increase in, in the consumption of convenient of convenience products and meat. You and, and meat, yes, and yeah. some of the oils. Yeah, and uh, and um, um, yes, the uh, the 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 uh, the the, uh, the traditional diets, which were perhaps more labour intensive to produce and so on, have. Um, are waning. There's no question about it. Is the world community sensitive at all to the impact that these trade policies have had on nutrition and health? And that's, they weren't put in for that purpose. And my mm-hmm. guess is that the people who crafted these policies really weren't thinking about that as one of the implications. But no, uh, they, they, I would say no. And, uh, and regrettably, there's there's not more um, uh, sophisticated analysis. Um, food security is obviously an incredibly important issue around the world, especially with the issue of high food prices recently. And food security, even food security, did not get really sufficient attention. What people it, used to refer to as hunger. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, in, these, in these kind of agreements. And food safety was there. 
Um, but um, but when when you're even that far behind with with those kind of food security issues, then these other issues uh, are, are not are not really spoken about. That they say, well, we, we we allow free trade, and then people can make their free choices. But of course, people people make make selections between foods, but are influenced by the environment, and that's what what trade does. It it changes the the, the food environment. You know, I'd like to follow up on a point you made earlier about world meat consumption mm-hmm. incre- increasing, and I've mm-hmm. seen some data on increased pork consumption in some countries mm-hmm. and increased beef consumption mm-hmm. in others, but um, it's going up overall, is that correct? It's going up overall, and actually the main straw here is chicken. Um, chicken consumption, production and consumption um, has soared. It's absolutely incredible that people are shifting, as they did in the United States over the past several decades, they're shifting from beef um, to chicken. Pork is remaining around stable uh, per capita, um, but it's uh, chicken is where the main story is. And, and the, the main trade story here is animal feed. The United States is, is the most important exporter of animal feed in the world. And um, if, if other countries produce more chicken, they have more of a market for their animal feed. Why is the U.S. exporting so much animal feed? It produces a lot. <laughs> um, so we're a fertile country, so certainly that's part that's of it. Right. But, ag- but agriculture policies um, are also... Yeah, the, the, I, think, I think what happened in the United States uh, after uh, the, the, the Depression and after the, the war in the 30s and the 40s was that a lot of research. Um, was, 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 was done into these products, how to increase yields of soybeans, of corn... Uh, and, and and the research is just had an incredible effect on the yield. And, in, and for some of the products, uh, particularly corn subsidies, probably also enhance this. It's, a, it's soybean was a little bit different, and the, the the subsidy world is complicated. What what's what's clear to me is is that the the research into these products really really increased yield. Production was encouraged, and 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 American farmers were very very good at doing this, and they and they produced excess. And um, and after a while, it became clear um, that the American government needed to, uh, to promote exports if it was going to to keep this se- sector going and to, and to make money from it. And so, there's no secret. Uh, clear, um, a fundamental, central component of U.S. agricultural policies to promote exports, and many other countries, by the way, including Brazil, of course, and and China and, and the European Union are the same. So the fact that that what's being um, grown in the U.S. in abundance mm-hmm. and being exported has important nutrition implications for the world because, for example, it leads to greater meat production. That's outside. right. And it lowers, I think what's important is it lowers the price, it lowers the cost of producing meat. Um, but but this is this is this is globalization. Um, recently, a Brazilian company brought up um, a, a major meat packer here in the United States, and it's actually a Brazilian company which are now the largest meat packers in the world. So uh, we're seeing a shift in power relations. Uh, the U.S. is and the European Union also will continue to be very very important in world food markets. But China and Brazil, in particular, are becoming more and more important. The U.S., for example, has um, increased the amount of food it imports incredibly in the last twenty years. It's gone up from um, something like twenty one thousand million dollars worth of food imports up to more than seventy mm. now, and so we're seeing an increasing number of imports into the United States. You know, people in the United States are. You accustomed to thinking that we're we're the biggest of everything, and mm-hmm. but we don't have the biggest food companies in the world in mm-hmm. the U.S. If it's still true, I understood that the largest food company in the U.S. Kraft is only the third largest That's in the world. Correct. What are the others that are? The and biggest? Nestle is the is by far the the biggest food company in the world. It's it's a phenomena. Nestle, which is based in Switzerland, it's an absolute uh, phenomena. 
Um, and uh, one of the reasons it is is because it's been in developing countries for quite a long time, as well as hit present here in, in the United States as well in, in different forms. Um, so it's a big world out there. The French have very large dairy companies. Danone is a, is a very large company. Um, but and, and, and it's a fight out there. Kraft recently bought a major food company in the UK uh, called Cadbury. And um, it's a big fight. They're all competing. And, uh, and you know, it, I often say, you know, these food companies, they're not trying to go around the world and make people fat. You know, they're not. They're not. Then that's not what they want to do. They want to compete and they want to make money. Hey, let, me, let me just throw a question out to you mm-hmm. in response to your last comment. Now, they don't go out to make people fat, mm-hmm. but they want to sell as much food as mm-hmm. possible. And as people do become overweight, mm-hmm. they're consuming more food. Mm-hmm. So although I don't think they ever articulate this as a goal that they'd like to make people mm-hmm. heavy, it's certainly in their interest for people to be heavy. There's an issue here. The first first issue is that, yeah, they want to sell more food. And that is exactly as you suggest, that that is going to imply that people are consuming more food. So you're absolutely right that it's not an articulated goal, but it's an outcome. But, of course, there's another way for those food companies to make money while not making people fat, which is to increase uh, the margins on their products. Um, And we are actually, interestingly enough, seeing that um, going on. So... um, this differentiating process that I've been talking about, they um, try and increase the margins on that product, and advertising does that. Um, one of the important issues to remember is that a cookies, the array of cookies, for example, sold by Kraft, are more, quite expensive relative to a much cheaper B brand or locally produced. Um, but because of the advertising, it makes people more willing to pay more for it. And so the margin is high, and that's one of the reasons that they want to go to developing countries. They can generate more profits. However, then what happens is that they want to have more and more and more people then consume that product. They want to turn, very, very important component of marketing is to turn, and, and, and trade is to turn non-consumers into consumers. That's any food industry person would, would admit to that, absolutely. So you've, you've got both going on, and I think you're right that between them, it's all about eating more, eating more, eating more, eating more. So I'd like to ask you whether there are any proposals now for changes in trade policy that are sensitive nutrition. But before we do that, I'd like to mention that you've, you're have you one of the authors on a book on trade, nutrition, and obesity issues. Could you give us the, the, the title of the book and the publisher in case people would like to get a copy? Yes, it's called Trade, Food, Diet, and Health um, uh, Perspectives and, and, and Policy Options. And uh, it's published by uh, Wiley Blackwell um, in the UK, but it's available all over the world. And what we tried to do with that book is to bring together a series of papers that were originally presented at a conference organised uh, by McGill University um, to really just try and get some papers together that looked at the linkages between um, trade and diet and say, what are the linkages? And, and then what are the policy options to, to address it? Because we just feel that this this is not really on the agenda of policymakers. Um, it's it's not even very much on the academic agenda, and um, and so we just wanted to pull some papers together that started to really look at the issue. We haven't got the answers. Uh, we don't know what all the, the linkages are. We just tried to to bring different papers together that examine the issue in different ways. It's a very very interesting bunch of papers. Some people in there are very. Um, pro-free trade, others are more sceptical. We need to get people together who have different perspectives and different concerns and, and, and start a real discussion about this issue. Well, as soon as I heard about the book, I got a copy myself, and it's really a wonderful piece of work and groundbreaking in the fact that it's an important issue 
hasn't been attended to as much as it should be, and uh, it really brought together some influential papers. So congratulations for that. Thank you. Um, do you see any evidence that world governments are attending to the nutritional consequences of trade policy? I don't think they're, they're at all looking at trade policy as, a, as an issue. Um, but they are looking at the consequences. Uh, as we've uh, discussed, various countries around the world are now trying to bring in policies around obesity and, and, and diet-related chronic diseases, but they don't see it linked necessarily to these broader changes in the macro environment. Uh, they see it more that consumers are just making um, the wrong kinds of choices. And um, and, I, and I think it deserves more attention because it, it helps it put it into context and it also help, would help policymakers see that this is not just an issue with individual choices. It's both. It's, the, it's the, the choices that are changing, but it's also in the environment that are changing. And when you look globally, trade and globalisation more generally are, are playing a very important part in that, in that process. Good. Well, thank you for bringing it to our attention today. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. So our guest is Dr. Corinna Hawks. Uh, world expert on food and food policy issues. I'm delighted that you joined us today, and please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of other resources, a variety of pieces of information on food and food policy issues, including a newsletter on food and food policy and a list of the other podcasts with excellent guests we've had at the Rudd Center. Thank you.